I'll be reading from Genesis 44, verses 1 to 13. When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry, and put each man's money back in his sack. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack, along with the money for his grain. So the manager did as Joseph instructed him. The brothers were up at dawn and were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, Chase after them and stop them. When you catch up with them, ask them, Why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's silver cup, which he uses to predict the future? What a wicked thing you have done. When the palace manager caught up with the men, he spoke to them as he had been instructed. What are you talking about? The brothers responded. We are your servants and would never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it all the way back from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If you find his cup in any one of us, let that man, with any one of us, let that man die. And all the rest of us, my lord, will be your slaves. That's fair, the man replied, but only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go free. They all quickly took their sacks from the back of their donkeys and opened them. The palace manager searched the brother's sacks from the oldest to the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. When the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair. Then they loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city. Thanks, Kara. Morning, TCC. It's uh, been a long time since I've been here. It's always good to be home and to worship with you. And I want to say thank you for praying for your daughter's church, Southwest, uh, which is doing well these days. We've had good, strong attendance through the summer. We're missing Pastor Norb today. Uh, he couldn't find the sunshine here. So he went south and... Uh, he found some sunshine, I think, in the Bahamas. So uh, uh, he's enjoying uh, a couple of weeks away. Twenty-five years ago, I had a telephone call from a pastor. Uh, you will, some of you will know this pastor, uh, Pastor Ron Berg. And he said, Ken, would you marry a couple who are here from Germany and they want to be married in Canada? So I said, well, I would be happy to do that. So I met the couple, and uh, I called all the German friends together that I had that could speak the German language. And uh, we had a wedding celebration that it was very memorable. Uh, and I got to know these wonderful people. Uh, and they, after 25 years, are here today. And their names are Peter and Carmen. Bobert, and I'm going to have them stand. Let's give them a warm welcome. Peter has been to Canada 17 times. I think we have to make him an honorary citizen. <laughs> and Carmen, you've been here about eight times, yeah, 10 times. So we are just delighted to have you here today and to celebrate those 25 years. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. 
Oh, the worship was so rich. Uh, thank you for our worship team and for encouraging our hearts just to be here and to lift our hearts to you and to praise you and to be reminded of who you are, the sovereign God who loves his children. And by grace and by your favor, we can come into your presence, not of our own merit, but all that you have done for us, Jesus Christ. And to you, we give the praise and the glory and ask that you would minister this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We get tested many times as we uh, make our way from birth to death. Mark and I took a little trip to Whitehorse, Yukon, uh, this summer. Because we'd never been north. I don't think we've ever been further north than Grand Prairie. So we said, we just have to go, even though we don't have a lot of time. So, uh, and we'd never been on the Alaskan Highway, ever. So we said, we, we've got to do this. Around Fort Nelson, if some of you know where that is, the traffic was slow uh, on a two-lane highway. And I was feeling the need to get around all these cars. So I poured the coals to my little Malibu, and it shot past these cars, and I was feeling pretty good for passing about four cars in one shot, when suddenly a car behind me came with flashing red and blue lights. I was not feeling so good at that moment. I got pulled over. And you know how your heart sinks in that moment? It's like, oh, how could it happen to me? And, uh, and then they don't get out of their car for a while. You sit in that deathly silent zone for about four minutes before he finally comes to your window. They are punishing you with silence. Those are the worst four minutes living with your guilt. And he's checking your license plate like, am I a bad guy? And, and, and finally he comes to the window and he says, do you know that you just passed a police officer? I said, no, I didn't know. Uh, he said, I didn't think so. Most people don't pass police officers. So he was kind to me and he gave me a very minimal ticket and uh, said that if I paid it within 30 days, uh, that would, I would get a $25 discount. So what a bargain I had that day. Uh, so he finally leaves, and I look at Marg, and I roll my eyes, and my wife is good that she never reinforces the guilt that I already feel. And there's a moment of soberness, and then I drive off. I hadn't gone very far, and once again, I see my new police officer friend. He's behind me again, and I see him in the rearview mirror. He's still following me. He's testing me. We get to a stretch of road where it slows right down to 80 kilometers per hour, and there's no need for it, but it is 80 kilometers an hour. I slow right down. It's painful, and he follows me for 20 kilometers then suddenly he turns around and he goes the other direction. And I must have passed the 80-kilometer stretch of highway test. He gave me a break and, uh, and he was testing me for the road ahead. I think the chapter that we're embarking on today, Genesis 44, could simply be called the test. The test. It's really all about Joseph trying to assess where his brothers are at. 
What have they learned? If anything, have they learned anything? What has time brought their way? Now, Joseph knows his own life and what he's had to work through. And he knows what he's gone through. But what about his brothers? All summer, we've been rehearsing the Joseph story. If you're new here today, uh, from the last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis. And there are so many things that we learn from Joseph as the story unfolds. He's a great man. I, I just, I say that very candidly. He's a great man. Why are we drawn to him? What do we like about him? There's nothing to indicate that he's a brilliant man. It's not that he's super gifted, but we all know that the one thing that stands out above Joseph, above everything else, is his attitude. He's an amazing attitude. His attitude is inspiring. And that's the main thesis to his life. Attitude. A good one. He gets more press time than anyone else in the book of Genesis. He's right up there with Moses. He's right up there with David in terms of a lengthy description of his life. What is remarkable about Joseph is the fact that he could be resentful. He could be bitter. He could have taken all these, these things the wrong way. He's not bitter. He's always taken the high road. He stays in a place of being useful to God. So if you keep your heart right, you can stay useful to God. Uh, here he is, a young man, 17 years old, uh, uh, sold into slavery. He survived the false accusations of a scorned Potiphar's wife. He is thrown into prison. God shows, shows him favor by raising him up. And whatever he puts his hand to, Joseph prospers. He accurately interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. The baker lost his life. The cupbearer was restored to Pharaoh. And finally, after two more years of imprisonment, we would say, Joseph finally caught a break. But really, this was the timing of God. And Joseph was called to the Pharaoh's palace to interpret his dream. And because his interpretation was of God, God opened wide the heart of Pharaoh. And you know the story. He was appointed number two man in all the Egyptian kingdom. He was the prime minister. He was given all authority. So wherever he went, the Egyptians bowed to him. And he had on his finger the signet ring, uh, which was the official stamp of Egypt. Whenever he put that ring that was official. In the course of his duties, Joseph is called upon to give his approval to a group of men from Canaan who come to Egypt looking for grain because the famine has been so severe in their land. Joseph recognizes these guys immediately. They were his brothers. But they did not recognize him. <coughs> no doubt his heart was just beating wildly to see his brothers, and he managed to bring his emotions under control, and he acted like... He didn't know them. In fact, he knocked them off balance by shouting at them, saying, You're spies. You've come to invade our land. You've come to do harm to us. And, and it's like, wow, he knocked them back in their shoes. Good one, Joseph. Like, they'll never guess who this is. And he caught them off guard. And they said, We're not spies. Eventually, after all the brothers spending a little time in jail, Joseph keeps Simeon in jail and sends the rest home. But he makes sure that the money they paid for, for the grain, is returned. And he put it in their sacks. When the boys get out of town and stop for the night, they discover the money in their sacks, and it scares them half to death. They said to each other, what has God done to us? 
What has God done to us? That's a key verse in understanding this, this story today. What has God done to us? What is he doing? They, they, they reflect quickly theologically. What is God doing? This could hardly be a good thing to see the money in our sacks. How will we explain how we got the grain and we also got our money back? What will happen when we get back to Egypt? We'll be, be thrown in jail because we've, we've been stealing the money. Did you ever see that commercial from Ikea, by the way? The woman runs out of the store with all of these items. I mean, she's just loaded down with items and she, she thinks that it's been such a good sale. It must be a mistake. She yells to her husband, start the car, start the car. Let's get out of here. And it's, it's just hilarious. And she thinks she's got this great deal. So they're going to catch her. So we better get out of town. The brothers got a good deal, but they weren't so sure this was a good thing. Finally, when the grain runs out back in Canaan, the father, Jacob, urges them to go back and finally gives permission for Benjamin, the youngest son, to accompany the brothers back to Egypt. So we're in chapter 44 this morning. And maybe if you just read chapter 44, you wonder, what's the point of this story, really? Martin Luther struggled with the chap this chapter in the Bible, and he wondered why the Lord put it there. Such a trivial 34 verses that's just taking up space. Oh, yeah, but it is so much more than a bunch of details that, some, that don't seem to take us anywhere. Isn't it often in the everyday ho-hum details of life that our attitude is tested the most. I like what one writer says, most of life is not super fantastic. Much of life is just a cut above toothpaste. Just plain garden variety, ordinary stuff, not that much to write home about. <laughs> That's true. Now, if you're reading this chapter, it's possible to read it without seeing the intentional two-part exam that Joseph puts into motion. It's amazingly well done. It's really a little bit of genius here. What's the exam about? Well, where are the brothers now in relationship to God? And where are the brothers in terms of their relationship to their family? How have they been doing with God? How have they been doing with their family? Have they learned? Learned anything in 20 years? I mean, a good question for us all. Are we the same old, same old? Haven't changed a bit in five years? Haven't changed a bit from 15 years of age and now we're 20 years of age, but nothing has changed in our dynamic with God and with others? Uh, a refreshing work of being used of God. So the first one is the God test. When it was finally time to leave Joseph and uh, go back to Canaan, Joseph gave instructions to his palace managers, uh, his executive assistant, his deputy minister, whatever the term would be. And he said, fill each of the sacks with as much grain as possible, put each mother money, uh, man's money back into a sack, and put my personal silver cup at the top of the younger brother's sack. That's Benjamin. So, okay, watch this. The stage is being set for the exam. These brothers hardly get out of Dodge when they look up and say, they see the dust in the distance. There's a horse coming. They're being pursued. And sure enough, it's Joseph's de deputy minister. And he flat out accuses them of stealing. Oh, you just feel the tension beginning to build here. 
This, this could be a movie. Why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's silver cup? What a wicked thing you've done. We would never do such a thing, the brothers responded. There's nothing in our sacks that we weren't given. We came for grain, we got grain, we're headed home. And you could look at the sacks if you want to. We will be your slaves. If you find anything but grain, we will be your slaves. Oh, and then this next step. In fact, you may kill the one who is guilty. That's how absolutely confident they were that they hadn't done anything wrong. So they said, go ahead, search our sacks, take a look. And the deputy minister did. He started with the oldest, and he went to the youngest. And horror of horrors, he found the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Oh, my goodness. They were dumbfounded. They tore their clothes. They were so sure of their innocence, they offered the life of the one who had done such a thing. You know, one of those, uh, one of, uh, that's one of those days when just everything goes wrong that just could possibly go wrong. And we thought we had all the bases covered. We thought this, we, we've been here before. And to their astonishment, there was Joseph's silver cup. What is that silver cup? Just to, just to clear this out of the way. Uh, the silver cup, did, did Joseph really use the silver cup for predicting the future? My guess is that this is a part of Egyptian culture, and Joseph may have had a silver cup that he valued, but it wasn't used for divination or for determining what the spirits wanted to do. Joseph knows his God. I mean, he doesn't need to be engaged with occult practices. But remember, Joseph is playing the part of an Egyptian, so he wants this to be authentic. The brothers are once again all brought back to Joseph's house, Well, actually, to the prime minister's office. And the boys must have been wondering if they could ever catch a break with this guy. And yet there was a whole lot more going on in their hearts. Judah did the talking. Now, if you're following, verse 16. By the way, this is one of the the finest speeches by Judah in the whole Old Testament. You should read it carefully. You can learn from Judah. In a minute, he had a heart response, but also a well-thought-through mental response uh, to, to the prime minister. Some commentators call this a speech that is unexcelled. None better. Amazing speech. Oh, my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves. All of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. Wow, really, Judah? God is punishing us for our sins? I mean, the fact that Judah acknowledges that God himself had uncovered their sin is very significant. They did not see it as Joseph's strategy or one of his pressure tactics. They recognized God's sovereign intervention. And timing is important. Joseph held it together when he listened to Judah. Don't you think he just wanted to take Judah? Oh, my brother, my brother, and weep with joy for the fact that he had, he had given the right response. Yet he restrained himself. 
And watch this tension escalate. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. Oh, the rest of you can go back to your father in peace. Oh, my. Does he know how to get them going? This is a divine stirring of the pot. What will you say uh, to that, Judah? No, we will just keep Benjamin, and the rest of you, you can go. Oh, he put him in a tough spot. Joseph is anxious to know how his brothers will respond to all of this. He has basically put Benjamin's life on the line. Well, he wanted to see if, if in 20 years, ha- had anything changed? Anything happened in your heart? Or are you just the same? It's a test. Are they going to throw Benjamin under the bus? Yes, he took the cup. Will his brother say, that's on him. Take him. We don't care. Lock him up. Throw the key away for the rest of his life. Just let us go back to our father. Remember what they did to Joseph? They threw him under the bus. They thought nothing of it. Uh, They didn't really care about Joseph. And now will they do that with little Benji? Although he's not little Benji anymore. He's a grown man. He's probably 25 years of age, but he's still the youngest. Perhaps we have to ask, would we still make the same decisions that we did 20 years ago or 15 years ago that sent us down the wrong path? Have we changed? Do we have a brokenness in our heart? Don't you think Judah says more than he needs to say? I mean, what prompted him to talk about his past. God is punishing us for our sins. What was that all about? He doesn't know it's his brother. But Judah connected the dots. The guilt of what what they did to Joseph has never left these boys. Never left. After all these years, they feel as bad about it as they did the first time around. But now it's coming to a head. Judah is saying, we may be innocent of this little situation. I don't understand really what's going on here with this silver cup thing. He said, I don't get it. But, but I do know that God is uncovering our guilt. And we stand before you not guilty of this crime, but we're guilty nonetheless. <clears throat> God is finally catching up to us, and it's payback time. After 20 years, there is a brokenness in Judah's life. And we've got to assume for the rest of the boys as well. Brokenness, although it seems like a hard thing, is always a good thing. Oh, it's hard to be broken. It's, we don't want to be broken. We don't want to come to grips with the things that have devastated our lives. If there are issues in your family or in relationships, brokenness is a key to healing. When there is brokenness, suddenly you're able to hear things that you've never been able to hear before. Suddenly you're beginning to, you're beginning to put some things together and, and, and you've had blind spots to them. Suddenly we're willing to hear the truth even if it's painful. So the key to restoration is brokenness. David experienced that same brokenness after his affair with Bathsheba. He went on to write, You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. I mean, if, if you look 
for how a family is attempting to resolve issues. Look, first of all, for the quality of brokenness. Pray that God would do a powerful work of brokenness. Because without that, the change is very insignificant. Oh, I mean, we can put a lot of pressure on people. We can, we can kind of just crank it and put the pressure on. And in the end, even after we've done all that, nothing really happens. It's just an exercise in futility until there is a brokenness of those involved. Oh yeah, our own willpower will have some effect and maybe some change can happen, but it's nowhere close to the change that real brokenness, the brokenness of the Holy Spirit working in our lives brings. So Joseph puts his brothers through a series of tests to really check the level of change in their lives. Is it just talk or is it the real thing? And the person, you know, who is broken probably doesn't even talk about his brokenness. He just says, oh, I was dead and now I'm alive. I, I was so blind and now I can see. And, and he, he or she moves on. When someone is always justifying themselves or putting it on someone else and not owning it, it's really your fault. I mean, you started all of this. and I mean, That's just the opposite of brokenness. And that's pride. Pride does not have a very nice smell before the Lord. Brokenness is a sweet aroma to the Lord. He loves that. He loves that in our hearts that we're broken. Brokenness doesn't point the finger at anyone else, but it just points the finger at ourselves. So the first test is a test of how they're doing in their relationship with God. And so far, so good. Judah is taking ownership for the past. They don't turn on Benjamin and throw him to the walls. And Judah, what he's saying, it's powerful. It's a confession. Judah basically said, we're all guilty. And he doesn't know he's talking to his brother. He doesn't know who was the victim of their hatred. He doesn't know he's talking to Joseph. So that's what makes it all the more authentic. He has now come to the point of admitting sin, acknowledging wrongdoing, and dealing with his guilt. So the first test is finished, and the boys have passed the exam. They have no idea that the prime minister of Egypt has put on their desk an exam that would play such a pivotal role in forming a nation that would eventually come from this family, 12 tribes. Now, what about the second test, briefly? The family test. One test is vertical, and the next test is horizontal. So Joseph is holding back, he's holding back, he's holding back until he can get one more answer. He needs one more to clinch this. What is it? Some years ago, uh, a TV movie, I don't know if you've seen it, called The Promise, told the story of a young man and a young woman who on the eve of their wedding were involved in a terrible car accident. It was a horrible accident. Both were very, very seriously injured, the bride was horribly disfigured. While they were recovering in hospital, the young man's mother visited her soon-to-be daughter-in-law. Now, this cruel woman, the mother-in-law, never wanted her son to marry this young woman, right from the beginning. And now she saw a way to prevent it. She told the young woman that she would pay for all the plastic surgery to restore her face if she promised to disappear and never have anything to do with her son again. And in the midst of her trauma and how she was feeling, she made that promise. 
Shortly thereafter, the mother told her son that his fiancée had been killed in the accident. Horrible. But several years later, the young man and the young woman met. Since he had not changed greatly, she immediately recognized him. She tried to keep her promise. But gradually, as circumstances brought them together, he began to recognize her. He realized that this woman that he had loved so deeply with a love that was still in his heart, she was still alive. Eventually, they were reunited in a romantic sense of reconciliation. They had their big wedding, and uh, it was an amazing day. Now, anyone who has ever been reconciled, who has ever been reunited after years of separation, knows exactly what this is all about. Listen, after years of separation, Joseph is now on the cusp of something that he wanted for a long time. But there's still some road to travel. Joseph said, only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. What was Joseph doing? He was putting Benjamin in the same difficult situation as he was put in 20 years prior. But what a moment. Verse 18, look at Judah step up and assume leadership. He is so impressive. Then Judah stepped forward and he said, please, my Lord. I love this. Let your servant just say one word to you. Please do not be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. Now, how's that for an introduction? Don't get ticked off, because I'm going to say something that might hit you wrong, but, but just hear me out. And so Judah retells the story of all that's happened, and his mind is so full, and he, he is one of those analytical minds, and he needs to rehearse the story, and he needs to go through it chronologically and detail it out. But the bottom line is, Mr. Prime Minister, if we go back home without Benjamin, that would be the absolute worst for our dad. Our dad would be heartbroken. Dad will die. Oh, would you look at that. Judah and brothers are actually concerned about their dad. Hello. They weren't before. He quotes his dad, if you take Benjamin away from me and any harm comes to him, you will send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. I cannot. Our father's life is bound up in that boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. Ooh, that's plain. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving, white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will blame, bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. You are looking at a broken brother. You are hearing the words of someone who is in the process of change. This is not Judah of old. This is a new Judah with a newly transformed heart. He's different. He's changed. Judah's not going to throw Benjamin under the bus. No more of that stuff. And that's precisely what Joseph was wanting to find out. Are you going to sacrifice Benjamin the way you sacrificed me? 
And Judah says, take me. I'll be your slave. I'll be your servant. I'll be the prisoner for the rest of my life. The only thing I ask is that you let my brother go. Take me. What do you think Joseph is feeling? I mean, here's two exams. He's got to pass on both of them. Chapter 45, uh, I think it's verse 6. He could stand it no longer. He had everyone leave the room. So it was just him and his brothers. And then he broke down. He melted into a bucket of tears. He looked at his brothers and he said, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. That's all for next week. You've got to come back. The staggering response by Joseph. The brothers have had to work their way through 20 years of history until their hearts were broken. And don't forget, Joseph had to, he had to work himself through all these areas as well, only he got there faster. And he was broken, but then he had his eyes on God. Three quick lessons for us, and I'm finished. Number one, restoration was brought about by brokenness by both parties, by both sides. I say it again, Joseph was broken too, and it brought him to God. And it kept him dealing with it over and over again for 20 years until he always had his heart right. The brothers took some time to be broken, but eventually they too were crushed in their hearts, and there's clear demonstration that there's, they're no longer the same. Now, I just want to say this. Effective restoration comes when all the parties are broken, even those who seem to be innocent. It's always a greater win when both parties are broken. But I want to say this. Even if just one of the parties is broken and the other refuses to be broken, there is still gain. There is still gain. The person who is broken will recover. We, I, we put it this way. They will land on their feet again so they can restart. Brokenness is always helpful for the healing process. And so if you feel like, I can't do anything to change that guy or that gal, that friend, if you just change yourself, if you just accept what God is doing in your own, you will have gained a, a major victory because healing will come to your heart. And God has to deal with the other person. Secondly, taking responsibility for our sin always brings results. God honors a straightforward confession without self-justification. I mean, sure, we can find ways to, to justify ourselves. However, if we've been wrong, we've been wrong. We've been wrong. God honors that perspective. Well, can we take responsibility, or why can we take responsibility for our sin? Well, it's because we have a father that's not out to get us. I mean, when you understand who the father is, it's not hard to have a broken heart because he, he loves you. He, his grace is extended to you. He loves you today just as you are. And in your brokenness, it's a beautiful thing to him because your heart is softened towards him. He is always for us. Even when things are hard, you can know that he wants to pick you up and move you forward. So if that's where you're at today, he loves you. He loves you in your brokenness. He will help you land on your feet. Finally, God is still sovereign. He can even take our mistakes and somehow, some way along the road, he can bring good out of evil. Ah, you say, my life seems like such a mess. 
What do I, what do I do now? Look at what God did for Joseph. I mean, there's more to come here that's awesome and beautiful, but, uh, but just think of Jesus. He will never throw you under the bus. He has always got the best for you. Watch him make lemonade from the lemons in your life. Watch him continue to grow your heart. I mean, if Joseph could be this forgiving, what about Jesus? Jesus is a type of Joseph. Watch him continue to grow your heart. The test. Isn't it often in the everydayness of life that our attitude is challenged the most? Remember the words, most of life is not super fantastic. Most of life is just a cut above toothpaste. Just plain, garden, variety, ordinary stuff. Not that much to write home about. But here is where we're, ten- we're tested. So would you stand and let's pray together. And just thank the Lord for his grace, for his care for each of our lives. Father, I thank you this morning for this beautiful story. Lord, that has been captured in the Holy Scripture. And we have a chance to learn from Joseph through uh, all these years. Thank you for how it speaks to us today. And Lord, I pray that most of all, as we hear this message today, that there'd be a sense that, that our brokenness is beautiful to you, that you receive us in our brokenness, Lord. We don't come with excuses and self-justification. We just say, Lord, here I am. Receive me. Forgive me. Help me to land on my feet again. Help me to be your person through the glory of God.